Hello and welcome. I'm Professor Simon Hicks, Head of the Department of Government here at the LSE. It's a great pleasure to welcome Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's First Minister to the LSE this morning, as part of our British Government at LSE Public Events Series. <coughs> the title of the First Minister's lecture today is Beyond the Budget. The Twitter hashtag for, today, for today's event is hashtag LSE Scotland, as you can see. Nicola was first elected to the Scottish Parliament in 1999 and became leader of the SNP and First Minister in November 2014, having played a prominent role in the referendum on Scottish independence in September 2014. Nicola is the first female First Minister and also the first female leader of any of the devolved administrations in the UK, with possibly 40 or more SNP MPs in a hung House of Commons after the election in May. The First Minister may well find that she holds the keys to number 10 in her hands. First Minister, welcome to the LSE. The floor is yours. Thank you very much indeed for that uh, warm and uh, interesting introduction, <laughs> Professor Hicks. And a big thank you to all of you for coming along here today. It is a real pleasure, indeed a real honour, for me to be here this morning at the London School of Economics. Uh, the LSE has, of course, been at the very heart of debates on economic and social policy across these islands ever since its foundation. Uh, for example, your current work to develop a crowdsourced constitution is, in my view, a fantastic example of an initiative which is timely, innovative and one which could have a lasting impact on public affairs. But I want to start my remarks today by looking back to the legacy of one of your founders, Beatrice Webb. In 1909, Beatrice Webb wrote a famous minority report for a royal commission on the poor law. It's often seen as being one of the very first descriptions of a modern welfare state. She spoke about her desire for everyone in society to have, and I quote, sufficient nourishment and training when young, a living wage when able-bodied, treatment when sick, and modest but secure livelihood when disabled or aged. That vision is now more than 100 years old. It encapsulates the basic aspirations of any civilised society. But there is still work to do, much work to do, if that vision is to be realised in full. Indeed, I would argue that, certainly in some areas, as a direct result of the current UK Government's economic policies, we have actually moved a bit further away from that vision in recent years. Now, on Wednesday of this week, we will hear the final UK Government budget of this Parliament. So today, I want to make three specific points which start with the budget, but go beyond the budget. I want to talk firstly about the lack of consultation and impact assessment which characterises UK budget decision-making and argue that in recent years this has led to decisions which have harmed our most vulnerable citizens and damaged jobs and growth. Then I'll make a related point. Budgets often propose simplistic measures to deal with complex problems. I'll talk about the way in which short-term posturing can often trump strategic thinking when difficult choices have to be made. And finally, I'll suggest some different choices that could and in my view, should be made in this week's budget. But before I do any of that, it's perhaps worth looking at 
Budget Day itself and its place within Westminster as an institution. There's been rather a lot of speculation in the newspapers recently that Parliament might have to move from London uh, because the Palace of Westminster is in such a dilapidated condition. Its fabric is crumbling, some areas are prone to flooding and other parts haven't been properly refurbished for generations. Uh, but in my view, it's not just the building that needs to be overhauled, <laughs> it's the institution itself, the House of Lords, the first-past-the-post voting system, the culture, the procedures and the working practices of the current Parliament. I think all of them need to be overhauled. The rituals of Budget Day are just one part of that, but they are an important part. For example, there is a very specific reason why we traditionally don't hear about the government's financial plans until very shortly before the start of the financial year. Uh, that reason dates back to the 17th century. Uh, the Crown would ask Parliament for money and Parliament found that it could force the Crown to economise by delaying the approval of that money. Now, whether this ancient tradition still makes sense today has been questioned for decades. Back in 1980, the Institute for Fiscal Studies commissioned a report on budgetary reform and it pointed out that the timing of the budget uh, means that the opportunity for financial appraisal both inside and outside Parliament is very limited. In other countries, budgets are consistently presented three months or so before they take effect. The process UK governments follow now, as in 1980, allows virtually no time at all for proper deliberation or consultation. And that problem is made worse by the way in which successive governments have approached the budget. You know, chancellors take pride in pulling rabbits out of the hat. Surprises on budget day are seen as a virtue. They help to create headlines and they also can wrong-foot the opposition. Now, it's much more difficult for that to happen in Scotland. Uh, the Scottish Government has to publish a detailed draft budget each September, which is four months before the Budget Bill is actually laid before the Scottish Parliament. Indeed, I want to reflect on a particular aspect of the Scottish process, which might be of particular interest just now, given the possibility of minority government following the general election. I was the deputy leader of a minority government for four years. I now lead a majority government. And just in case anybody is wondering, uh, I should make it clear, I do actually prefer having a majority. Uh, but there are some advantages to minority government. When we were in a minority, we could only win votes by winning arguments. Sometimes we had to compromise. That process can, and very often did, lead to better budgets. At different times, we won support from Labour on increasing apprenticeships, from the Greens on a home insulation scheme, from the Tories on regenerating town centres, and from the Liberal Democrats on college bursaries. It involved a process of building consensus across a whole parliament, not just forcing decisions through using the power of the party whip. And the point is this, the Scottish system lends itself to that because there is ample time for negotiation to take place and Parliament is able to see and crucially to scrutinise the compromises which are made between the draft budget 
and the final budget bill being laid before Parliament. It strikes me that doing anything similar at Westminster would require really substantial changes to how budgets are put together. Uh, more importantly, most importantly perhaps, it would require a different and a far more consensual approach to budget decision making. Now, I think that would be beneficial. And who knows, it might be one of the benefits, perhaps one of the many benefits, of a period of minority government following the general election. Because the current UK budget process, in my view, simply doesn't lead to the best decisions. Firstly, it has all of the hallmarks of what I would describe as Westminster culture at its worst. It's closed, top-down, unnecessarily adversarial, all of which helps to alienate people from the process of politics. Secondly, and more importantly, it seems to make poor decisions more likely. The obvious example of that is 2012, uh, or to use the official title of that budget, the Omnishambles budget. Um, a tax cut for everyone earning uh, £150,000 was widely and rightly condemned. Taxes on charities and church repairs didn't seem to have been thought through. The temperature at which pasties were sold became a matter of national debate. And in Scotland, we had the job of explaining that what you called the pasty tax was actually the bridey tax. <laughs> you know, the process for setting out the UK finances became a running farce. Now, 2012 was unusual, but the big problem is it wasn't that unusual. Gordon Brown's stealth taxes or Labour's ill-thought-out announcement in 2007 of the decision to abolish the 10p rate of tax provide other examples. Even after those budgets were published, it took days for people to understand what they actually meant. Because if you regularly make changes to complex tax systems without prior consultation, then every budget has the potential to become a shambles. It's a recurring feature not a one-off flaw. So in my view, the current UK budget process does need to be made much more open. Now, complete transparency won't always be possible, but in the overwhelming majority of cases, better consultation would lead to better decisions. In particular, the budget should be opened up to proper scrutiny in terms of its impacts on equality. An important part of the Scottish Government's budget process is that we are advised throughout the year by an equality budget advisory group. When we produce our draft budget in September of each year, we also publish a detailed equality budget statement. The UK Government claims to do equality impact assessments, but they've been significantly downgraded in recent years. Uh, the Prime Minister has described them as bureaucratic nonsense. Uh, perhaps that's why the one that accompanied the 2013 spending review contained just five pages of text. And of course, when you look at the detail of this UK government's budgets, it's clear that equality impacts have not had much of an effect on its spending decisions. This government's cuts have had the biggest impact on those on the lowest incomes. Many measures have also hit disabled people hard, in Scotland, 80% of the households who would have been affected by the bedroom tax but for our action to mitigate the bedroom tax included a disabled person. The House of Commons Library found last year that the Coalition's tax and benefit changes have affected women almost four times 
more than they have affected men. With equality budgeting, you still have to take tough decisions to make the books balance. Uh, it doesn't absolutely guarantee fairness, but it does make it more likely. And in particular, it becomes much, much harder to arrive at and implement the sorts of decisions we've seen in the UK in recent years, when the most vulnerable have undoubtedly borne the heaviest burden of austerity cuts. In fact, that basic principle behind equality budgeting applies to most areas of policy making. To put it simply, you get better decisions with better consultation. I've already referred to the 2012 budget uh, in many ways as an even more relevant example from 2011. Four years ago, the UK Government increased the supplementary charge, an additional tax on the profits of North Sea oil and gas operators. It meant that for some older fields in the North Sea, the marginal tax rate became 81%. There was no prior consultation and the impact was almost immediate. New projects were put at risk. Four years on, with a lower oil price and high taxes, companies are not investing in exploration. We're in danger of seeing fields prematurely abandoned with long-term consequences for jobs and the balance of trade. The Scottish Government is now asking the UK Government to take steps in this budget this week to encourage investment, partly to reverse the mistakes it made four years ago. You know, we've known for five decades now about the wealth of oil and gas beneath our seas, but no UK government has ever had a proper plan for stewarding this resource. We need a long-term outlook to maximise recovery of our oil and gas reserves. We have to engage in proper consultation with industry and others, and we must promote the technologies which will help us move to a low-carbon future. Surprise budget day tax rises do none of that. They simply damage the confidence of industry and harm our long-term interests. The lack of meaningful consultation on budgets contributes to uh, another problem, the fact that the culture of the UK Parliament often limits debate on genuinely complex issues. For example, the Scottish Government has today published statistics on severe poverty. And these statistics show that more than half of all children and more than 40% of working-age adults who live in severe poverty in Scotland live in households where at least one person is in work. So any serious attempt to tackle inequality therefore has to focus hard on in-work poverty. It's a major reason why the Scottish Government pays the living wage to all of our own staff and encourages other companies to do so as well. And it's why we are currently developing a Scottish business pledge to encourage good employment practice as part of good business practice. As the Resolution, Resolution Foundation and others have pointed out, the work allowance is the measure which makes the biggest difference to many working people on low incomes. Now, for those of us who are lucky enough to be in well-paying jobs, the work allowance is something we might be very unfamiliar with. But for anybody who relies on employment support or housing benefit or is entitled to the new universal credit, it is more important than the tax rates that we all pay so much attention to. The work allowance determines when people entering work start to have their benefits reduced. It's often set at a very low level. For a lone parent with housing costs, for example, it's currently set at just over £3,000 a year. 
After that point, benefits start to be withdrawn. And for people on universal credit, £65 of benefit is lost for every £100 of post-allowance salary. Now, of course, there needs to be some sort of deduction rate or tapering system in order to make work pay while also keeping the benefits bill manageable. There are some really difficult trade-offs in all of this. But that complexity, it strikes me, is part of the problem and perhaps part of the reason that it's easier for chancellors to ignore it and concentrate on simpler measures instead, even if these simpler measures are less effective. Take the personal tax allowance, for example. A lot of attention is paid to the fact that people begin paying 20% income tax at £10,000 a year. And that's right, the personal allowance is important. But we pay far less attention to the fact that a working single parent faces a 65% deduction rate when they earn just over £3,000 a year. And actually, if you receive universal credit and pay income tax, a £600 increase to the personal allowance in the forthcoming budget, which I'm certainly not arguing against, will boost your income by £42. But the same increase to the work allowance will boost your income by £390. That's why the current UK Government policy of freezing work allowances is, in my opinion, so misguided. It effectively cuts the benefits of workers on low incomes. So the Scottish Government is calling today on the UK Government to announce in this week's budget a significant increase in the work allowance to help ensure that those in work have a better chance of lifting themselves and their families out of poverty. Basic rate taxpayers would still see their allowances rise, but there would be even larger gains for people who are on the lowest incomes. It's a moderate, proportionate response to the question of how we genuinely improve incentives to work. But when the budget is so focused on headline-grabbing surprises and simplistic measures, such policies rarely make it into the Chancellor's red box. And there's a third and final area I want to touch on in discussing some of the specific spending choices the UK Government makes. The defence budget is currently under great strain. We've heard discontent from government backbench politicians in recent weeks and most recently rumours of discontent amongst senior military personnel. Service personnel numbers have reduced significantly in recent years. Cuts have been made in important areas. For example, we no longer have an airborne maritime patrol capability. When reports were received last November of a Russian submarine patrolling to the west of Scotland, the UK had to call in aircraft from France, America and Canada. The nearest patrol vessel was in the south of England. So it's interesting to consider, in that context, the UK Government's priorities. Now let me make clear, first and foremost, in the interest of having all of my cards on the table, I disagree with renewing the Trident nuclear missile system on principle. I think nuclear weapons are morally wrong. And I don't believe Trident has strategic value. It doesn't prevent conflicts between nuclear and non-nuclear states, and it's almost impossible to imagine the circumstances in which it could ever be used. But in addition to these moral and strategic <coughs> arguments, it has become increasingly clear that Trident and the renewal of Trident is financially unjustifiable. The Trident Commission last year calculated that the equivalent annual cost of a new Trident system will be almost £3 billion. Cash costs will peak at £4 billion in the mid-2020s. In total, 
Renewing Trident will cost around £100 billion at 2012 prices over the next 35 years. To be clear, my party believes that this money should be invested in health and education instead. But even if you look just at the defence budget, Trident will place huge pressures on spending. It will take up almost one-tenth of the UK's annual defence budget and around a quarter of the capital budget for the period from 2018 to 2030. As the Trident Commission itself said, important defence projects currently in the pipeline will surely suffer delay or cancellation. And as I've said, you can already see those pressures in some of the choices the UK Government has made. We don't have the aircraft to patrol our own waters, and UK military and defence civilian personnel have reduced by 28% in the past 14 years. So as politicians in Westminster argue over meeting NATO's target of spending 2% of GDP on defence, it is interesting that they regularly forget to mention that they're planning to spend $100 billion on weapons of mass destruction that we're never going to use. It makes no sense. We're buying a status symbol in place of a strategy. And of course, what makes all of this even worse is the wider public spending context. Trident renewal, just like the public spending cuts favoured by the Westminster parties, isn't really fundamentally <coughs> questioned, or so it seems to me. Um, I made a speech here in London last month about the unprecedented cuts to public spending that the UK Government is planning in the next Parliament. I pointed out that these spending cuts aren't just bad for many individuals, although they most certainly are. They're also damaging to the economy as a whole. Manufacturing across the UK is still below pre-recession levels, so is productivity and so is GDP per head. The current account deficit, a key measure of trade and income flows with the rest of the world, is worse than at any previous point in the UK's history. And as the LSE's Centre for Economic Performance reported just last week, UK government cuts reduced our economic growth by at least 1% during the first two years of this Parliament. That low and unequal growth is the major reason why the current government has missed its own deficit reduction targets by a total of £150 billion. So that's why the Scottish Government has set out an alternative approach, one based on limiting real-term spending growth to 0.5% a year. That policy of very modest spending increases instead of cuts would still see debt and deficit reduce as a proportion of national income in every year from 2016-17, but it would also free up an additional £180 billion across the UK over the next Parliament. That money could be used to invest in infrastructure and innovation, protect the public services we all depend on, and ease the pressure on the most vulnerable in our society. By offering an alternative to the austerity agenda of the main Westminster parties, we can ensure that fiscal consolidation is consistent with a wider vision of society a society which strives to become more equal as part of becoming more prosperous and more fiscally sustainable. And I would argue that's a vision that is consistent with the words of Beatrice Webb. You know, just before the passage I quoted earlier, she spoke of securing a national minimum of civilised life open to all alike of both sexes and all classes. It's an ambition all of us can sign up to, but in order to achieve that ambition, to turn it into a reality, we don't just need new policies, we need a new approach. 
I've uh, reflected a lot on the Scottish referendum campaign in the last few months. As you might have noticed, I've sort of had to reflect on it. It didn't quite go the way I would have chosen uh, for it to go. But that aside, there seem to me to be two hugely positive things which came out of that referendum. The first is that we got to ask ourselves some really fundamental questions. What sort of Scotland do we want to create and how can we create it? And the second thing was that the process of asking these questions unleashed a sense of enthusiasm and engagement from both sides of the debate, which, regardless of the outcome, will serve Scotland well for decades to come. You know, we see research published today showing that a higher percentage of people in Scotland say that they intend to vote in the general election than is the case in any other part of the UK. Now, if that comes to pass, it will be a direct and very positive legacy of the experience of the referendum campaign. But there's a final point which is also worth making. During the referendum campaign, we were in Scotland repeatedly told by Westminster politicians that Scotland was an equal and valued member of the UK. That contrary to how many of us sometimes feel, our voice did matter within the Westminster system. So what I would say is this, don't be at all surprised if the SNP, the Scottish Government, indeed Scotland as a whole, now starts to take those Westminster politicians at their word. We have clear and constructive views on many aspects of UK policy which affect Scotland deeply. And these are views which we know are often shared by many people elsewhere in the UK. And we intend to bring those ideas forward in a positive spirit. So we will argue for different tax and spending decisions. This morning I've used the examples of oil and gas, the work allowance and Trident. We will argue for a moderate approach to deficit reduction, one that doesn't penalise the vulnerable and hold back economic growth. And we will, crucially, if we get the chance, bring to bear our hard-earned experience of government, including of successful minority government, in arguing for a different, better way of doing things. Budgets should take equality impact seriously and use consultation much more effectively. Politicians should all be a bit more open to compromise, complexity, even doubt. Policymaking as a whole needs to move a bit further from the arcane rituals of the House of Commons and a bit closer to the model of the crowdsourced constitution. None of this is easy. Neither my party nor my government has all of the answers, far from it. But we know we need to try, and we do want to be part of that effort. So if we get the opportunity, we intend to be a constructive voice in the months and years ahead. We won't just serve Scotland's interests, although we will most certainly do that. But we will seek to do more than that. If we get the opportunity, we will also seek to play our part in bringing about positive, long-lasting and progressive change right across the United Kingdom. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. The First Minister has agreed to take questions. We've got about 25 minutes uh, for questions. I'm going to take questions first uh, from um, some of the students here at the LSE and then afterwards from some of the members of the press. 
Um, so please keep your questions short. I'm going to take them in batches of two or three and say who you are. So the first hand I see is this gentleman up here. Can you wait for the microphone, please? Hi there, thank you very much. I'm from Stirling, and I'm a student here at the LSE studying a Master's. I just wondered, since we're in a university and talking about budgets, how sustainable do you think keeping the free tuition fees in Scotland is, especially for Stirling University, for example? Okay. Thank you. Second question here, this woman in the middle. You have publicly agreed to try and keep the NHS services outside of TTIP, but why aren't you taking a stronger stance against TTIP? You want independence for Scotland, but what about independence for international corporations? We'll take one more gentleman up there in the corner. Um, my name's Alex Mitchell-Moore. I'm from Portland Communications. Um, I just want to ask... Um, you talk about sort of wanting to enact this change in Westminster. Can you be a bit more specific about how you do that? Would you, for example, go into a coalition with Labour if they emerged as the largest party in May? I think there's enough there to chew on for a <laughs> Some meaty questions there in the first round. Um, let me just take them in the order they were asked. Um, how sustainable is our policy of free tuition? Uh, I believe it is sustainable. Uh, we have proven what many people thought we wouldn't uh, prove in the first seven, eight years of that policy, which is that we can provide free access to university uh, students while also funding world-class universities. I, I, use, I always fall into the trap of using this uh, terminology free. Uh, of course, everybody pays through uh, the taxation system, but access to university education without tuition fees. Um, this is a, a policy I believe in passionately and my belief in it comes from my own experience in life. I grew up in uh, the west of Scotland, grew up in a working class family. Um, I got to go to university, was the first member of my family to go to university, studied law. Uh, I would not have had that opportunity if there had been a policy of tuition fees in place because even if there had been a policy of paying them back later on, the prospect of accumulating that scale of debt would have been enough I think, to lead me not to go to university, not because my family wouldn't have desperately wanted me to go, but it wouldn't have been a practical proposition. And here's where the passionate belief comes in. You know, my education and the fact I had that educational opportunity is one of the key reasons that I'm able, as a working-class girl from the west of Scotland, I'm able to stand here today as First Minister of Scotland. And having had that opportunity, I have no right to take that opportunity away from young people in generations that come after me. Uh, so I will uh, defend the principle of access to education being on your ability to learn, not on your ability to pay as long as I've got any part to play in politics. It's that fundamental for me. Um, secondly, on the question about TTIP, uh, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership uh, proposed uh, trade agreement between uh, the European Union and the USA. Um, we take a pretty st strong stance in some of the issues that are concerning people about TTIP. Before I go on to them, though, let me just directly answer your question. People you know, will very often say to me, why don't you just come out and say you're against TTIP full stop? I guess there's two reasons for that. Firstly, I'm not against trade agreements in principle. Trade agreements uh, can be a good thing for our economy. They can also pose challenges to our economy, but we have many trade agreements with other parts of the world. They're not per se uh, a bad thing. And secondly, and this is one of the problems about how TTIP has been negotiated, we don't yet know exactly what that trade agreement is going to say, what it's going to include and what it's going to exclude. Um, 
As I say, that's one of the problems. Because it's been negotiated under a cloak of secrecy, effectively, um, people don't have, have clarity in what's going to be in it. But we have taken a very strong position on two things in particular. First is any suggestion that public services as a result of TTIP could be opened up to privatisation. Uh, and I say public services generally, although much of the discussion has been around the National Health Service. We've called for a specific exclusion on the face of TTIP for the National Health Service, and I hope that is delivered. Um, because I think if that is delivered, that will give many people who have concerns reassurance. And the second issue I've got concerns with is what's called the investor state dispute resolution system, the notion that companies can sue national governments if they disagree or feel that the policy of national governments injure their commercial interests. Um, I don't believe that is the right kind of thing to have included in TTIP. So I would oppose a TTIP that either had public services opened up within it or allowed uh, that right of companies to sue national governments in that way. Um, and I'm very clear about that and will continue to, to argue strongly on both those points. Um, and lastly, Alex, on uh, coalitions uh, or working with other parties. Um, first and foremost, let me say quite uh, up front, the SNP will never have any coalition, formal or informal, with the Conservatives. Um, by and large, <laughs> in case it comes as a surprise, Tories right now have one MP in, in Scotland. Scotland, by and large, doesn't vote Tory. Now, obviously, we don't know what will happen at the election, but I'd, I'd be surprised if that fundamentally changed. Uh, so we will not have any role in putting the Conservatives into office. Um, I've also said quite openly, for, and, and some of the reasons for me saying this lay in, in the remarks I made in my speech, I think a coalition between the SNP and Labour in a formal sense is highly unlikely. In fact, there's speculation that Ed Miliband's about to rule it out uh, later today. Um, but since I've already said it's unlikely, I'm not sure that changes too much. Um, but working with Labour uh, in a, a looser arrangement, I certainly wouldn't rule out because I want to see SNP MPs uh, being in the House of Commons arguing for and pushing for progressive change. Uh, I also don't want to see David Cameron re-elected to the House of Commons and you know, I can't see for the life of me why uh, Labour wouldn't want to contemplate the possibility of working with the SNP to keep the Tories out of office because remember as long as there are more SNP and Labour MPs than there are Tory MPs we can lock the Tories out of government. There's no question about that. So I don't rule out those uh, other uh, working relationships. In fact, uh, I think they may have uh, many things to, to commend them. But first and foremost, we've got to let people vote. There perhaps is a little too much focus developing in this campaign on the post-match analysis. Let's remember that what happens after the election will be dictated first and foremost by how people vote in the election. And I think all of us have got to be mindful of not taking people for granted. Thank you. Okay. Question right at the back. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm looking at tax uh, here at the LSE. Um, you said earlier that you are um, suggesting that uh, investment should increase in the oil and gas sector and at the same time you seek to reduce tax. Um, to me, that leaves a gaping hole in your budget, especially with, with uh, oil around $50 and, and any investment in the sector being economically unviable. 
Um, how do you propose to fill that um, hole? Because, and oil is pretty much the only thing you were banging on about before the referendum. Um, and considering where oil is now, do you not thank your lucky stars every night when you reflect on the outcome of the referendum that you're still with Britain? Is that a technical term, banging on about, yeah. It's, uh, it's technical enough for the SNP. <laughs> Let's take another one down in front of Thank you very much. First Minister, thank you very much for coming here today. That was a slightly atypical LSE contribution, I think, to debate. At least I hope so. Um, thank you first for giving um, Beatrice Webb her proper position as the originator of the th thinking behind the welfare state. Um, you also described, I think, very compellingly the impact of the current government's um, policies both on austerity and throughout their budget processes as well, but you emphasized the lack of genuine thinking about equality. And I wondered what your views were on the present composition of the House of Commons and the House of Lords, where there are fewer than a quarter women represented there, and where it looks likely that there will not be much improvement after the next election, and whether there are causes and effects here which we ought perhaps to draw more attention to. Thank Why don't you take those two? Okay. Um, sir, uh, question at the back. I, I, I'm detecting I've got a little bit of work to do to persuade you of the <laughs> SMP's case, but I, you know, I, I never give up on these things, so uh, hopefully I'll have, you, I'll have you supporting the SNP by the time we get to the election, even if you can't vote uh, for us. Um, on the question about oil, uh, first thing, would take this in, in two parts because you could have asked me uh, two questions within your, your question there. Firstly, on what needs to be done now to support the North Sea. Uh, the North Sea has you know, a long and very productive life ahead of it if the right things are done right now. And there is huge consensus in the industry. Um, and I think across the political spectrum now what those things require uh, to be. Serene Wood, uh, perhaps the foremost uh, oil expert, expert in Scotland has, you know, as recently as this morning, been reiterating these calls. There's three things that need uh, to be done. Firstly, we need to see a reduction in the supplementary charge to take away the damage that was done four years ago by that sudden un, uh, unconsulted on hike in the supplementary charge. Secondly, uh, we need to see an investment allowance uh, to uh, increase the incentives for investment. And thirdly, uh, an exploration tax credit. And you know, the experience of Norway when it introduced exploration tax credits was that low exploration rates suddenly increased very sharply. So those are the three things that we are calling for. And you know, in a sense, this is a, a critical moment for the North Sea. If these things are done right now, albeit they cost, and I would put them in the context of what I said in my speech about a, an overall modest increase in spending uh, approach to uh, look to expand our economy uh, rather than uh, hold it back over the next parliament. But if we do these things just now, we open up uh, the future where there's up to 24 billion uh, barrels of oil that could still potentially be extracted from the North Sea. If we don't do these things, the danger is we will see premature uh, decommissioning of oil fields. So it's a critical moment, and I hope George Osborne takes the right decisions on Wednesday. In terms of the second part of your, your question about oil and the place of oil and the oil price generally, you asked me directly, does the fall in the oil price make me uh, grateful we didn't vote for independence? No, it doesn't. I wish we had voted for independence because it's always struck me that there is something 
if, I can, if I'm polite about it, I will say ironic. If I'm less polite about it, I'll say deeply, deeply insulting for not yourself, sir, but for Westminster politicians uh, to say, you know, because there's a low oil price, Scotland can't afford to be independent. You never hear any other oil-producing country in the world at a time of lower oil prices say, for goodness sake, we better rethink our independence. <laughs> Norway. Norway right now can cope with the lower oil price because it's got a £500 billion oil fund. Uh, Scotland has to take its share of the £1.5 trillion of UK debt. UK is one of only two oil producing countries in the world, the other one being Iraq, that hasn't got uh, a sovereign uh, oil fund. So, you know, my point here is the stewardship of that fantastic resource has been abysmal. And when you're faced with a situation where you've had abysmal stewardship from one set of stewards, it strikes me that the last thing you should do is leave them in charge of it for the next 40 years as well. So that is why uh, I deeply regret that we didn't take the opportunity to be independent. Um, on the question about equality, an issue very close to, to my heart, um, I think we've got, I think, well, firstly on the positive side, I think we're making great strides on gender equality. Uh, if I look at Scotland, I stand up every Thursday to do First Minister's questions in the Scottish Parliament and you know, I do it before a female presiding officer, Speaker of the Scottish Parliament. I'm asked questions by a Labour female leader and questions by a Tory female leader. So that's good, uh, but we've still got a long, long, long way to go, even in the Scottish Parliament, which is generally seen as being much further ahead than the House of Commons. Um, I have to be pretty frank here about my views in the House of Lords. I, 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 I don't wouldn't spend a lot of my time arguing for uh, better gender balance in the House of Lords. I would rather argue for the abolition of the House of Lords, which would be, I think, the, the better way of dealing with the gender balance problem. But the House of Commons, yes, I, I think there is still uh, a considerable way to go. And, you know, if I, look, if I look at my own party's Westminster candidates, we're fielding more women than ever before, and many women, hopefully in winnable seats, that will end up in the House of Commons. But we're still at only 36% of our candidates being women. It's not good enough. Uh, I, you know, I'm of the view, and this doesn't just apply to politics, that the time has come for quotas um, because the pace of change without that is too slow. Um, I am proud that I lead one of only three gender-balanced cabinets in the entire developed world. Um, and when I appointed the gender-balanced cabinet, I got... Uh, some emails from folk asking me how I knew all the women in the cabinet were there on merit. Uh, I didn't get a single email asking me how I knew all the men were there on merit. <laughs> and the point is, we don't have a meritocracy right now. If, if we did, we'd have gender balance. The pace towards that has been painfully slow, and I think it's time for us to give it a good kick up the backside and get it there a lot more quickly. And that applies to politics, but it applies much more widely than that as well. Okay. Let's take a question from the press here. Hello, First Minister. Michael Settle Hello. from the Herald. Welcome back to London. Um, g given your speak insight... Speak up, please. Can't hear you, Michael. You can't hear me. Yeah, yeah, no, she's all right. Just speak up a bit. I can it's hear fine. you, but... You can, can hear me. You can hear me now. Okay. Uh, given you're in such a constructive and positive frame of mind, would you take this opportunity to offer Ed Miliband constructive and positive talks in a potential deal with the SNP before the election so you can discuss your priorities for a progressive alliance. Let's take one more from the floor. Woman here with the glasses. 
Uh, Kirsty Hughes, Friends of Europe. Um, my question follows on from that. I mean, could you comment on what it means for the state of British democracy that Cameron and others are trying to make a formal or informal coalition with the SNP be, make you almost into a pariah status, make that unthinkable? And, and what does that mean for the possibility that you might quite soon, for instance, ask for another independence referendum? Another one from the press over here. Gentleman, second row back. Um, as Michael was just saying, you were sounding very positive and very constructive. Um, sorry, Jim Pickard, Financial Times, should have said. Um, but why should the SNP be trusted to play such a positive, constructive role uh, in a union that you and your party want to dismember? And, and just secondly, do you consider yourself British? Very good. Why don't you take those three? Uh, okay. Uh, Michael... As you know, I'm always positive and constructive, um, at least I do my best to be. Um, I've set out very clearly, I've done it on many different occasions, I've done it again here today, what my general approach is to the possibility of a, a hung parliament and how the SNP would approach that, including ruling out the Tories and you know, talking a bit more expansively about you know, what I think might or might not be possible with Labour. Um, I think that's probably where it has to stop until people have voted. I, I'm not for pre-election negotiations or talks. I think that starts to get to the point where you treat the voters with contempt. It's for the voters to decide uh, what parties they want to be in the House of Commons, in what strength, and I think we need to let that fundamentally important part of the democratic process take place, see what the position is, and then whatever talks or discussions have to happen, ha happen after that. So I'm not uh, offering or agreeing to pre-election talks or negotiations uh, with Ed Miliband, which I'm sure will disappoint him deeply. Um, <laughs> secondly, uh, Kirsty, I, mean, I think that's a very good question, and I, I, I suppose I, I alluded to some of this in, in my remarks. I mean, firstly, there's research published in Scotland today, which is the same research that I referenced in my speech, saying that more people in Scotland are saying that they're likely to vote in the general election. And that research says that a majority, 69% of people in Scotland, think Scotland will become an independent country. Um, and I think it will too. I can't tell you when that's going to happen, but what I do know is that that will only happen when a majority of people vote for that in a referendum. There's no shortcuts to it. It has to have majority uh, opinion. Um, but the first part of your question, what, what does it say if you've got Westminster politicians effectively uh, talking about the SNP as if, you know, David Cameron, who won't rule out a coalition with UKIP, you know, UKIP, who's only MEP in Scotland uh, at the end of last week, described a member of my government, the first Asian uh, member of, of uh, the Scottish government, in dreadfully... Uh, derogatory terms, uh, dreadfully racist derogatory terms. David Cameron won't rule out a coalition with UKIP, but seems to see the SNP as beyond the pale. Now, what does that say to people in Scotland? It says that what they heard people like David Cameron saying during the referendum, that we were an equal and valued partner of the UK, that our voice mattered, that it was heard, that it would be heard, they will suddenly hear that has been nothing more than rhetoric to try to win the referendum vote. Um, and I think that is wrong. I, it's no secret that I think Scotland should be an independent country. Um, but as long as we are part of the Westminster system, then it is equally reasonable uh, for Scotland, uh, if it chooses to do this by voting SNP, to have its voice heard 
in that Westminster system. And to say that even if Scotland votes in large numbers for the SNP, then it can't ever have that is, I, I think, sending a very uh, bad and dangerous message to Scotland. And I suppose it takes me on to uh, your point, Jim. How can the SNP be trusted? Because, you know, we're not secretive about the fact that we want Scotland to be independent. We're, we're pretty upfront about it. But we're also Democrats. And I accept that the referendum result was not one for independence. As I've said already this morning, I believe Scotland will become an independent country. But it's only going to become an independent country when it votes for that. Um, until such times, we want, I want to see progressive change across the UK because that will make life better in Scotland. I want to see different policies emanating from Westminster because that will help people in Scotland. I want to see an end to the damaging, heartless policies that we've seen from this government because that will help matters in Scotland. So that's why you can trust me and the SNP to play that constructive role, because we'll be there arguing for the kind of things that we think are in the interests of Scotland, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people in this hall also think we'd be good for the rest of the UK as well. An alternative to austerity, you know, an end to policies that are penalising the vulnerable, a much more spirited defence of public services in public hands. These are the kind of things we'll argue for, and uh, I'm sure that as well as getting support for that in Scotland, we'll find it possible to build progressive alliances across the UK as well. And on the final part of your question, which I answered many, many times uh, in the referendum campaign, yes, I do feel uh, a degree of Britishness. I feel uh, that there are many things about Britain and what it means to be British that are as important to me as to people living in other parts of the UK. I'm the granddaughter of an English woman. My granny came from uh, the north of England. Uh, she, if she had been alive, would have voted yes in the referendum, I'm pretty certain. Um, but I've got family links in England. The, the, the family ties, the cultural ties, the historic ties, all of that is as dear to me as it is to anybody else anywhere else in the UK. And these ties are enduring. They don't depend on politics or politicians or constitutions that are about people. So yes, I have no hesitation and I've had no hesitation in saying I support independence, but that's not about turning my back on aspects of Britishness, which I hold as dear as anybody else. We've got time for a couple more questions. There's a woman at the back there and then the gentleman from the press down the front here. Hi, my name is Jennifer Isaacson and I'm a graduate of the LSE. I wanted to ask um, what your solutions are to the housing crisis that's uh, taking place necessarily, uh, not exclusively in London, across the whole of the UK. And specifically, what do you think about things like rent controls? And what do you say to you know, young people like me? I've got a master's from LSE. Because I don't have rich parents, I have no prospect in the current situation of ever owning my own property. I have friends that are, even in the banking sector, on 44, 50k a year, they don't think they're ever going to be able to buy a flat in London. Um, or elsewhere in the country, they're very worried about the first initial deposit because rents are so high. So what are your uh, solutions to the housing crisis and specifically rent controls like they have in uh, the Netherlands? Okay. And then final question from the press here. Uh, Todd McClyton, Daily Record. Uh, hello, First Minister. Uh, you are in London a lot talking about forming a progressive alliance in Westminster that will lock the Tories out. Most people in this room can't vote SNP. Who do you recommend they vote for? Can you put up a candidate in Wimbledon, please? <laughs> 
I mean, if anybody here particularly wants to try and persuade me to stand uh, candid, no, I'm only joking, before I think I'm serious. Um, Jennifer, it's a very, very good question. Obviously, the, the pressures on housing and access to housing are not quite as acute in Scotland as they are in London, but nevertheless, there are real pressures there. What are our the Scottish Government is currently trying to implement many of the solutions that we, we see here. Uh, there's a range of things we're doing, uh, schemes like help to buy, shared equity schemes to help people onto the housing ladder are important, but you know, fundamentally we need to build more houses. That is the fundamental uh, root of the solution to the uh, housing crisis. There's a shortage of houses, which is why the, the cost is so high and we need to build more. We set a target at the start of this Parliament to build 30,000 uh, affordable houses over the lifetime of the Parliament, um, and we're on track to meet that. And We need to continue to spend as much resource as possible on building houses. The other thing we've done, which is different to uh, the situation in England is we've ended the right to buy uh, social housing, uh, not because we think it's wrong to own your own house, but if our problem is a shortage of affordable housing to rent and we're going to invest money in building those houses, it just seems to make not much sense to allow them then to be lost to the social sector. So we have other schemes like shared equity and help to buy to help people into home ownership, but where we're building housing for rent, we want to keep that available uh, for rent. Uh, we're looking at the issue of rent controls right now in Scotland. We've got legislation uh, forthcoming on some private uh, tenancy issues, and we've consulted on uh, the issue of rent controls, and we'll take a decision on uh, the, the way forward in that shortly. I think there is an argument for it. Um, I make no bones about that. You have to balance that, though. Uh, we need a good and a high-quality supply of private rented uh, sector houses, so we don't want to... Uh, curtail that supply by you know, going too far in the wrong direction. We need to get the balance right, but certainly rising rent levels is one of the issues that people are facing. So I think that uh, we're right to be looking at that, and I'll uh, keep you posted on how we uh, come to conclusions there. Uh, Torkel, who do I think people here should... Are you looking for a personal recommendation? or? <laughs> Well, um, if, if you live in Wales, I'd advise you to vote for Plaid Cymru. Um, if you live in England, I, I think there's an argument for voting uh, Green. I think there is, uh, depending on whether you think your Labour candidate is progressive and you know, is prepared to challenge, then you know, perhaps I, you know, it's not for me to tell people in England how to vote. If I was living in England, uh, I'd probably be looking at voting Green. If I was living in Wales, I'd definitely be voting for Plaid Cymru. So. I almost got there. I think I did answer the question. Uh, no, I, I, I would, I'm a progressive politician. I think in Scotland that means vote SNP, um, without a shadow of a doubt. Um, <laughs> and, you know, look at where... I, I want to see as many progressive voices in the House of Commons after the election. And, you know, that is SNP, Green, Plaid Cymru. I would like to see more progressive Labour voices challenging the Labour leadership um, so that there is that scope for that progressive alliance that I spend a bit of time in London talking about. So there, that, that's my advice, take it or leave it. But if you live in Scotland, definitely vote SNP. <laughs> well... Please remain seated while I escort the First Minister from the stage, but uh, before we do that, please uh, join me in thanking her.